everyone. Welcome to the Health Hack Podcast. My name is Andy Kraft. And I'm Aaron Kraft. And today we are covering using cold water immersion for workout recovery, alcoholic drinks for reducing brain size, prenatal mindfulness for infant health, cleaning your air with houseplants, and a lie about food deserts. So let's kick it off with cold water immersion. Now we've talked about cold thermogenesis on here before. We've done a few Instagram stories on uh, cold plunges. And this study caught my eye because it was looking at the impact of cold water immersion on recovery from HIIT workouts. So they took 32 males. I know it's, it's a small group. And they had them do a HIIT workout for four days. The HIIT workout was basically 20 seconds on for max pedaling or max biking, 10 seconds off for eight sets. They did, they did this for four days. Again, I know it's a short time period, uh, but the results were interesting. So they broke them out. In, so they all did, the whole group did this for four days. After each session, they were split into three groups. The first group did just a cold water plunge for uh, th 20 minutes. And the, the water was 20 degrees Celsius, which was 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Honestly, not that cold, hardly a cold plunge, but uh, I mean, you know, colder than standard tap water or room temperature water, I guess. Second group did a cold water plunge in CO2 rich water. So they basically pumped the water with CO2, essentially carbonated water. And then the third group just sat there for 20 minutes after their workout. In both the cold water groups, heart rate declined significantly following each immersion, which is no surprise. We've talked about on here before, not only can cold water exposure help with reducing uh, you know, temperature, obviously, but uh, inflammation and pain, but it can also increase parasympathetic activity. So with the autonomic nervous system, you have the parasympathetic and sympathetic. Sympathetic is the flight or flight, or flight response. I think I just said that. Fight, fight or flight. <laughs> fight or flight response. It's the stress, you know, reaction. And most of us are overactivated in that area. The parasympathetic is the stress, the rest and digest response. And cold exposure can activate the, the parasympathetic nervous system. So that's why a lot of people like to do it. That's been pretty well established. So not a huge surprise that, you know, heart rate went down following the immersion for in both groups. But what was interesting about the CO2 rich water group was that there was a significant decline in blood lactate levels. So, um, I, you know, if after you do a, a HIIT workout, you notice the, 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 the lactate in your, I guess in this case, it would be legs. And, uh, what, what they found is that CO2, I guess this is known, but CO2 is a, uh, a muscle vasodilator. So unlike regular cold water where, it's a vasoconstrictor, so your muscles you know, they 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 tighten up and allow l less blood flow. With CO two, it can penetrate the skin and it allows the muscles to open up. And so the theory here is that the CO two allowed for the lactate to be flushed from the system, so which prevented that that buildup. And um, you know, over the course of those four days, the CO two rich water group had lower blood lactate levels. Um, now what was interesting is that the performance didn't change among the four groups. They measured like the, uh, the, the power in which they were pedaling and the pedal repetitions. Those didn't change among any of the groups over the course of four days. But what they did notice is that the peak, peak pedal repetitions, um, 
went down over time. Each day they went down a little bit in, in all the groups, but they went down less in the CO2 rich group, not to a point that was st statistically significant. So and maybe if you had a longer study, you would see uh, more of a more of a change there. But um, but but basically, they they thought that having that CO two flush the lactate allowed for uh, a better recovery, so that you could do a little better the the next day. So it's still each day their performance declined, but it declined less in the CO two rich water group. Again, not to a point that was statistically significant. So take that with a grain of salt. But the takeaway here, cold water is a good way to reduce pain, reduce um, that kind of acute inflammation, activate the parasympathetic nervous system. And if uh, you have access to um, CO2 rich water, which I'm sure nobody does, it may actually help with um, reduced blood lactate. And what about just like, uh, like a, a bathtub full of like LaCroix would something like that work <laughs> instead? Yeah. Yeah. If you got LaCroix or Spindrift, just take a Spindrift <laughs> bath and yeah. you're going to be, uh, you know, especially now with the CrossFit open for the lucky people that made it to the qualifiers, the qualifiers, uh, something like quarter quarter finals, finals, maybe? whatever the next lines. round is. Yeah. Um, do this, just fill your bathtub with, with LaCroix, LaCroix. or Spindrift. Yeah. And um you're you're on your way to the finals. Yeah, there you go. All right. Next story here has to do with a a big headline that was over most mainstream outlets early this week or last week. And it was basically said something along the lines of one alcoholic drink a day reduces brain size. Like that's very clickbaity. People are gonna eat that up. So this was in many different headlines. So I kind of want to briefly go over kind of what that was. Is this actually true? Do you need to be scared out of drinking alcohol and not drinking anymore because of this? Um, and like many uh, nutrition studies, which this is a nutrition study, they're looking at correlation of, of food intake and how it affects your body. Um, a lot of these are done based on food surveys. And we've talked about this many times. Um, but this is a case where, yes, they use a food survey. Um, basically, the, the, the abstract of the article is saying, like, based on 36,000 people, one drink of alcohol was enough to reduce uh, brain matter. But if you look at kind of what they actually did here, um, they, did, they did use MRI um, scannings to look at their brain size kind of before and after. But to determine how much alcohol they drank, they asked them uh, one time, um, just at the start of the study, basically like how much alcohol do you drink on an average week? And they asked I mean, the units here they use are kind of, kind of, uh, different than what you would say, but basically they said how many, like they, they use alcohol units is what they, the, the terminology they use. So a can of beer is considered two units of alcohol, a shot, like a, a shot of a spirit shot is one unit. And then a glass of wine is two units. So beer and wine glasses are two units. A shot is one unit. That's kind of what they use. And they said, how many units of alcohol do you drink a week? Um, so then they basically added those up and then divided it by seven. So if somebody had, uh, what, 49 units of alcohol a week, divide that by seven. And they say, okay, you had seven units of alcohol a day 
I think I did that math right. Um, so they, they did it daily, which is, um, so then I'm going to go just to kind of give you that background there. So then I'm going to go to the study here and they say the, the volunteer participants had responded to survey questions about their alcohol consumption levels, um, from some people completely abstained from alcohol to on average, some people had four units a day. And it says the, the findings here, when it, the researchers group participants by, a, by average consumption levels, a small but apparent pattern emerged. That gray and white matter volume um, was reduced the more alcoholic drinks you had. Now, what's interesting is it didn't, it wasn't exactly a, a linear increase. So people who abstain completely to people who had one unit on average per day, there was no difference, no noted difference there. But then when you went from one to two and then two to three and then three to four units a day, then there's where you started to see kind of reductions, um, correlations between more alcohol, larger reductions in, in gray and white brain matter. But I guess what I kind of want to point out here is what's, what you can't get down to in these studies. They're so high level. They're so broad that you can't get into into the detail and you can't say for certain the alcohol is what is doing this. Like, first of all, with the way they where they calculated these units, like there could be one person, let's say someone in France is drinking a glass of wine just with their dinner every night. You're having a nice, healthy dinner. You drink, you sip on a glass of wine, like you're having 14 units a week. Then you take somebody else who's going on a weekend bender and drinking all that alcohol in a single day. That person who's kind of spreading that out, like with a glass of wine is going to be, have a lot different effect on the person who's drinking 10 fireballs in a weekend in one day. Um, but you don't see, you don't, you can't see the difference there. It's, it's too high level for that. Um, there's also the fact w which we've talked about with kind of meat intake, the people who do consume more alcohol, they're more higher levels or higher units. They're more likely to live a different lifestyle than people who abstain completely. Um, those are just common kind of themes. People who consume four units a day are, are more likely to smoke. They're more likely to eat bad food along with that alcohol. Um, there's so many unaccounted for variables that are just completely limited here. Um, it doesn't mean this isn't true. It just means we don't know if it's true. Um, it's, it's an interesting correlation, but the, the, the headline of one drink of alcohol shrinks your brain. Like you read that, you look at the abstract and you're like, oh, that's kind of scary. Maybe I should back off. Like it's, it's not that straightforward. And if you look in the details, you can see it's not that straightforward. It's an interesting correlation. But when you see headlines, this, I guess, alarming, like take it, take a step back and, and dive into it to see if it's actually strong evidence proving that point or not. And in this case, it's not this like alarming, overwhelming evidence proving that we, we don't see that on a, a survey food, a food survey study like this. Well, it's interesting too. Like the, the way that they measured the alcohol seems mm -hmm. a little obscure. Like a, a beer is this is worse technically or more alcohol than like a shot, which, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which even though there's more alcohol in a shot than, I mean, it depends the type of beer. Like if you're up in dragon's milk, maybe not, but like, <laughs> You know, a, a typical gla glass of beer is going to be less alcohol than a shot of whiskey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you, that's not measured. That's not captured here. Like, at, right. it seems like even if it was accurate, if people filled it out accurately, your actual alcohol consumption mm -hmm. 
is not really captured accurately. Yeah. So, and yeah. it's possible that you know people that, um, people that drink more alcohol or people that have smaller brains are bad at calculating their uh, <laughs> alcohol consumption too. So, <laughs> yeah, it could be that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, you got to be careful. I think with that, with with anything that's like using surveys, food surveys, just you got to just step back and and question it. All right, moving on to another one. This one is interesting to me because I am a new father. Aaron, as you heard last week, is about to become a father. So uh, prenatal and postnatal research has been really interesting to me um, over the past year. And this one looked at the impact of prenatal mindfulness programs on the stress response in infants. So they took, uh, it was a group of 135 pregnant women from low-income areas who were experiencing some sort of financial or health stress, all of them. And they were between 12 and 19 weeks pregnant, so uh, second trimester, early second trimester. And during that time, for eight weeks, two hours a week, they had them engage in this mindfulness program. Now, the mindfulness program had more than just... um, like more mind, more than just mindfulness as it relates to a stress response, stress reduction. That was part of it, like sitting meditation, um, uh, you know, mind mindfulness uh, uh, activities like throughout the day, mindful movement. But they also had mindful eating in there. Um, they gave some advice on nutrition and eating behavior. So it was more than just like meditation. But what was really interesting is that these uh, these women were following, their babies were followed six months after they were born, and they they did this stress test on the baby. So they connected electrodes to the baby's head, and then they had um, they did the stress test on this baby. One way to measure stress on babies is to have the mother play with the baby, engage with them, and then ignore them for a few minutes. That's a, that's stressful for the baby. You know, they have the attention of their their mother, and then all of a sudden. It's like you're ignoring me. And what was interesting is that the babies whose mothers engaged in the mindfulness program during pregnancy, they had a more acute stress response. So their their sympathetic nervous system was more responsive, like it was quicker. They, They noticed quicker that this is a stressful situation. But once that they the stressful trigger kicked in, the baby was better, those babies were better at um and like self-soothing so like sucking their thumb or playing with a toy or finding somewhere else to like calm themselves down and then after the stressful event they were able to lower their stress response faster so they were able to basically get back to baseline um faster than the babies who didn't so the babies whose mothers did not engage in a mindfulness program they were slow to respond to the stressful event they were not good they were more fussy um, during that stressful event, they weren't able to self, self-soothe like the other babies, and then it took them longer to recover from that stressful event. And so they attributed this to the, the mothers being able to, the, the mothers being better at managing their stress during pregnancy, even just for, for eight weeks. And this is still relatively early on in the pregnancy. I mean, this is, you know, second, early second trimester. Uh, and it just goes to show, we've talked about it, we mentioned a few studies here in our, in our newsletter just about how stress can impact, um, you know, not only the pregnant mother, but the offspring as well. So 
for for women out there that are that are pregnant, I know it's it's difficult, um, especially if you're already in a stressful event. It's hard to take the time to to engage in something like meditation, but it, it can have you know long term effects, positive effects on your your baby, hmm. even at, you know at six months. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, I can't speak to being a a, a, a father of, of a child yet, but I can speak to being a, a dog father. Like even with our like when I'm stressed, like when I feel a ton of stress, even if I don't show it, like Nala will like come over and like she's stressed too because she knows I'm stressed. Mm, yeah. Like even if I just like sigh in a certain way, she'll like she'll like read that and come over me and she like feels stressed. And it's like yeah. if a dog can do that, like yeah, surely a babe, like a, surely a baby can like read that, like feel that tension and yeah, um, it impacts them. Well, yeah, and you know, like the cortisol, like that's you know what you experience, like the the hormones, the nutrition, like it, yeah. your, your babies is feeling that. Um, yeah. But yeah, like, I was, yeah, if a dog like can experience that outside, oh yeah, a dog is, <laughs> I was going to say outside the womb, a dog is never <laughs> in the womb. <laughs> but yeah, a, a dog notice that a, ba- a baby can notice that too. And uh, mm-hmm. I think it's impacted by the, the mother's care, yeah, prenatal care, which is right. why it's, it's so important. Yeah. No, that's interesting. All right. The last main story of the week here is about uh, houseplants. I know during the quarantine, a lot of people became plant parents. So for all you plant parents, well, I got some good news for you. Um, there's been a lot of kind of talk around can plants like clean up the air. Like I've heard that before. I don't know if there's any merit to it, whether having a bunch of plants in your house kind of makes the air more clean. Um, and there actually is some truth to it. They did a, a controlled test on this where they put uh, they took three different plants. So they took a peace lily, a corn plant, and a fern arum, I believe is how you pronounce it. They put them in th- kind of three different rooms, just an enclosed room with nothing in the room but the plant. And they kind of, uh, they filled it with uh, nitrogen, di- nitrogen dioxide, which nitrogen dioxide is is one of many potential uh, uh, toxins, I guess, in the air. And specifically NO2 is the result of like, cars burning fuel so if you're in like an office building or a house next to like a very busy street it can potentially no2 can get into your house from all of those exhaust fumes so that's kind of why they were testing this specifically they were looking like at an, they they were doing this at an office building near um near near a busy street that's sorry that's what the, the the room that they put this in was equivalent to what a small office building near a busy road would be and they closed it in the room. They left it there for, I believe, just one hour. Yeah, with one within an hour, uh, all three plants were able to remove half of the NO2 within that environment. Um, so that's it's pretty significant amount. Um, now it was a very small room, and it was just one plant, but it was in a very small room. But it was capable of of reducing those NO2 levels by fifty percent. Um, then they kind of calculated this, like they they did the the amount of NO2 removed, the, the cubic square foot of the room to kind of see, okay, in your average office space or in your average room, how many plants would you need to for, for this to actually be effective? Like you need like 50 plants, is just one going to cut it? So they are saying for a office space of, uh, of 15 cubic meters, um, which is small. I mean, it's maybe a room uh, roughly 10 feet by 10 feet, maybe. So it's if you if you have like a home office and you have your a room for your office in a home office like that's roughly what this is 15 cubic square meter or 15 cubic meters um, in a space that does have very high levels of NO2 they said that five house plants would be able to reduce NO2 levels by 20 percent 
Um, not as crazy as this 50%. Um, but I mean, if you have, if you're a, a plant parent and you spend a lot of time in a single room, whether that's like the living room or your home office, like getting some plants in there actually can remove NO2 levels. Um, so there's, there's, uh, there is some evidence to this. Now, NO2 is not the only toxin in the air at the office or at home. Um, you know, there's, there's mold, there's the toxins from any like cleaning chemicals that you may use. So this is just kind of one, one tool to use to get cleaner air in your home. It's, it's not going to purify everything. You still need to take those steps of kind of reducing the harsh chemicals, like still don't use harsh chemicals in your house, change your air filter, um, you know, clean your carpets, make sure there's no mold. Like you still have to do all those things. But this is just one extra step you can take to to clean up one additional toxin. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. I've heard that for a while too. So it's cool to see an actual like study, a good study on yeah. it. You know, the, it's one of mm-hmm. associations. They actually like we're testing the air levels, and you know, I, I think what this shows is that plants can actually kill COVID too. So if you don't <laughs> want to wear a mask, just carry a plant around with you, and um, you're. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, that's really that's really cool. Katie, Katie's a big plant person, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, gotten a little harder to maintain with a, a baby, but we, we have a lot of plants in the house yeah. and yeah, it's, I mean, good for your mental health too. Mm-hmm. All right. So it's no surprise that inflation is just rampant right now. Uh, if you've tried to drive anywhere, you've seen gas prices go up. You've seen for, I mean, for the past year or two, uh, inflation has gone up for pretty much everything, groceries, food, especially, and a lot of people have been asking me, because I do financial planning for my full-time job, and a lot of people ask me, what is the best hedge against inflation? And this is a big debate. There's there's just a lot of uh, theories out there. And you know, the, the common one is the best hedge is a, a treasury inflation protected securities, or maybe short-term bonds, or, or CD ladder, or, or something like that. But what I've been telling clients is the best hedge against inflation is element. Yes, the ele- the electrolyte drink element. Now, a lot, not a lot of you are asking, like, how is that a hedge against inflation? Well, the truth is, we, you know, and, and not to be a pessimist, but we are at the end times. This is this is kind of the beginning of the end. And if you ever seen the Mad Max movies, you know, everyone's fighting over gasoline. That's kind of like the economy is is the gasoline. That's what everyone's fighting over. We're going to be past that when we are living on crickets and berries. We're going to need electrolytes and that is going to be really the the central central uh, demand in the economy is going to be how do we get electrolytes and so investing in that now starting to harvest uh these electrolyte drinks is the best way to you know make sure that you have a way to feed your family in the future you know i think people are going to to need sodium potassium magnesium uh, you know, when it's a free-for-all out there. And that's what Element does for you. So it kind of serves a dual purpose. It's going to help fuel your brain and your body so that you can, you know, go out there and uh, and fight for survival. But it's it's also going to be a key um, uh, form of trade in the future. So go get yours. This is the lowest price you'll ever get them at. And uh, you can go for at drinklmt.com slash health hack. You can get a sample pack. We're giving away those for free. So that's, I mean, a free hedge against inflation right there. Or you can buy a mon- monthly subscription. I recommend doing that now um, before, uh, you know, before everyone starts fighting over it. So drinklmt.com slash health hacked. 
All right, that is a wrap on the main stories of the week. The next segment is the fail of the week. Um, I think, Andy, you found uh, a guy who is big on Instagram, big on Substack. I think he goes by Food Lies. And he has some good content out there, some great stuff. But I think there's a couple questionable things that you wanted to kind of talk through and bring up. Yeah, uh, Food Lies. Uh, his his name is Brian Sanders. He, I mean, I would probably agree with like 90% of the stuff that he posts. He's big, you know, in the in- ancestral health community. He's big on, you know, whole foods, uh, you know, a- you know, animal-based diets. And he, he pushes back a lot on some of the mainstream uh, mainstream narratives on, on food. Uh, and he is a little bit snarky. Uh, he, you know, takes a little more snarky approach than I would take, but a lot of times his stuff is based on evidence and it's pointing out like food lies. Uh, like for instance, he big against seed oils and, and the lie that seed oils are better for us. He pushes back against that. Well, he put out a Substack article called food deserts and other food lie. Now, a food desert, we, I think we talked about this in one of our experimental episodes like a year or so ago, and a food desert is, is defined as parts of the country that are vapid of fresh fruits and vegetables and other healthy whole foods. So it's, um, it's talked a lot about in, um, I don't know, what, what's the, the word, the charitable uh, community, philanthropic community about areas of the country where people literally don't have access to good food. He pushes back against that and and says that's not true. Number one, fresh fruits and vegetables aren't required for a healthy meal. Uh, you can get animal based foods almost anywhere. And so he goes. He has a video that he did a couple years ago, and he goes to uh, he, he's in L.A. of all places, visiting local gas stations, corner shops, and convenience stores. And he's able to get he he was able to like to find liver at a at a Mexican uh, shop. He was able to find meat almost anywhere. And it's like, hey, I can find these nutrient-dense foods in, you know, this poor part of LA. You can get them on any food on the block. Like one of one of his quotes from the article is, I guarantee that healthy food options exist on every corner of America. People just need to wake up to the fact that beef, eggs, bacon, and even canned fish are super healthy superfoods. Now, I get what he's saying. I really do. Um, I we talked about here a lot on how animal-based foods are very nutrient dense. So no disagreement with him there. I don't, you don't necessarily need fresh fruit, fresh fruits and veggies um, to have a, a healthy meal. You can get those in, in other foods um, uh, like meat and eggs and fish. And I agree that, you know, maybe that's a bad definition of food deserts, you know, basically parts of the country that people don't have access to fresh, fresh fruits and vegetables because if they have access to animal-based foods, okay, maybe they're not a food desert then. And yes, some smaller gas stations do have some animal-based uh, protein sources. But to say that every person in America has access to healthy foods is just a little overblown. And, uh, and I work in a nonprofit or I work, I'm on the board for a nonprofit here in Charlotte. And like, this is a access to healthy food is a big problem that our families, families in our program face. So I'm, I'm passionate about this. And there's just a few things that he really misses about this, this argument that he makes. Number one is like access. Just because you can get food, you can get uh, food, like animal-based foods in LA does not mean that Everywhere in America, you have access to nutritious animal-based foods. 
I mean, if you've ever driven through what you've driven through West Virginia, like it, there's nothing there. Like you, there's these mountain houses that you're 45 minutes away from, you know, the closest supermarket, like that's not easily accessible. So, and that's, that's assuming you also have a car and maybe a, a household where there's two working parents and a, one of the, one of the parents can stay home and watch the kids for a single parent to drive 45 minutes. There's actually someone in our, uh, someone I've talked to in our program and they're like, they don't have a car, they can't afford a car, and it it takes an hour and a half to get to the grocery store via the bus, just the way that they're where their house is. So it's no, not everybody has access. But let's say assume that's not an issue. Let's assume everyone does have access. Affordability is a huge issue when it comes to getting access to good food. Um yeah, while, while meats are very nutrient dense, it's a lot harder to feed a family on just meat than uh, with like mac and cheese. And it's more expensive. Pork and beef prices have gone up substantially over the past year, and it's just cheaper to feed a family a boxed meal. That it is what it is. Um, so affordability is a huge issue here. And then when it comes to dietary preference, like not everybody wants to eat carnivore. Uh, I mean, yes, like animal-based foods are the nutrient, most nutrient-dense foods on the planet, but not everybody wants to eat that way. And so some people do want to incorporate fruits and veggies or maybe feel best incorporating fruits and veggies. Um, so all that is to say, I get what Brian is saying here. You know, there is a misconception about meat and eggs, but that doesn't mean that there aren't populations out there that don't have physical or financial access to high-quality foods. So that was kind of my pushback on that. Yeah, I think, I mean, just the cost, like, yeah, even if you could get me in all those stores and if those convenience stores did have accessible food, like they jack the prices up on those places. Like I have a convenience store right down the road from me um, and they sell, they sell eggs there. They sell bacon. They sell all this stuff there, but the eggs are like $4 for a dozen. Whereas like if you go to like an Aldi type store, you can get eggs for a dollar. Like the prices at those convenience stores are significantly more expensive like I'm, I, I cannot afford to do my grocery shopping at a convenience no, store so like yeah it's fit like you're within distance of it but you can't like do your grocery shopping there that's, that's not going to cut it the prices are too expensive yeah yeah and we did an experiment on this <clears throat> one of our better episodes um we actually tried living on like food stamp what we would get in mm -hmm. like food uh it's not called food stamps anymore, but $30 a week. We said, could we eat healthy for $30 per week? And that's assuming we have access. And it was difficult. It was hard. Let's, uh, let's wrap things up with our final segment, the, uh, our weekly plug. Um, Andy, why don't you kick us off here? Yeah. Uh, we recently, so we do, do a lot of meal prep, getting back into it after <laughs> adjusting to uh, the new baby and planning out your ingredients ahead of time is very important and it can be time consuming. We found this app, my wife and I found this app called Meal Lime, uh, M-E-A-L-I-M-E, -E, Meal Lime. And you actually put in like a link to the, the recipe. We use like Paleo Running Mama a lot. You can take a link and you put it in and then it will condense everything down into a very readable format and it'll tell you all the ingredients you need so you can actually put in all the all the meals you plan to make that week and mm -hmm. it'll grab all the quantities and it'll tell you here's what you, it'll make a grocery list for you oh, wow. and it'll tell you how much you need of each well, how, how does it know what does it, it has the recipes in there you you basically like copy the link in and it reads it 
Okay. It reads the ingredients. So like you go to a website and pick a random recipe and pull it in? Yep. Okay. Yeah, it's super. Huh. It's It seems pretty advanced. And uh, yeah. so we rather than having to manually go through the ingredients and say, all right, we need this, we need to add up this, it'd be like, here, you need two and a half pounds of beef. You mm-hmm. need, you know, two bunches of parsley. It's, it's really cool. So okay. meal lime, definitely check that out. Super useful. Right. My, uh, my thing goes right off that. So these can get, you can use these perfectly together. I actually didn't know about that app. So this will go perfectly with this. There's a website called budget bites. So again, this goes along with the story we just told too. Um, but basically they have like, it's a super in-depth website. I'm sure there's other ones like this, but they're very affordable meals and they're for the most part, whole foods, um, but they're very cheap meals, basically. And they tell you basically the cost of the recipe as a whole, how many people it feeds, the cost per serving. So if you're like, if you're tight on money a month, you can be like, okay, I need a $2 meal to get like $2 meals a week to get me by. Um, and I got a family of five to feed. Like you can go here and say, okay, th- these mm-hmm. meals are two bucks a week, two bucks per serving. And I can um, wow. add, I, I don't know if it has, um, yeah. What's it I guess you could just copy the link thing. It's called Budget Bites. Hmm. Um, what else am I trying to say? Oh, uh, it, you can you can sort it by like food groups. So like, I prefer to always have a type of meat in my in my dinner. So you can go like buy chicken or buy beef or buy pork, and you can pick by meat group, and then I can find all the chicken recipes. And then if I'm if I need a cheat meal, I can find okay here's a chicken recipe for a buck fifty per serving. Boom, add it to that to that app and then you're ready to go so those those two would pair pretty well together yeah that's awesome i'm gonna i'm gonna use that yeah Yeah. this is cool like paying you know chicken breast or chicken uh what are they buffalo chicken chicken and veggies two 265 per serving or 1059 per the recipe Mm -hmm. yeah this is neat okay they don't claim to be like health whole foods i mean it is for for people who are looking to get by with a, a cheaper meal. So like you could sub out some stuff if there's something that's, you know, garbage in here that you don't want to do, you can swap out to mm-hmm. have some healthier recipes. But, um, no, it's a, it, we've used this a couple of times and it's, uh, it's got some good, good meals actually. So it's not, it's not just if you're trying to save money, it's like, there's actually some good meals in here. So okay. they, they have an cool. app too. So you can just get the app for that as well. All right. Budget bites, check that out. And then the one I mentioned was meal lime and, uh, you're all set for the week. All right, that is a wrap. Hope you guys all have a great week. Uh, We'll be back again next week with another episode.